Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the awe of the world, its immaculate buildings, impossible landscapes, dreamlike hotels and resorts. Who wouldn't want to live in this lavish wonderland? It's so regal and perfect that the world's champion of democracy and human rights is sidled up closer to it than any other friends. The country has been very close and very helpful to us. A leader of Arab and Muslim people and a good friend of the United States. Is <laughs> indicative of the long-standing friendship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. It's no surprise then the Saudi Kingdom was picked to head the United Nations Special Panel on Human Rights. Its vision and expertise can now bless the world. Part of the Saudi monarchy's vision of human rights for the world includes, among other things, cutting lots of people's heads off with swords right in the middle of the street. Saudi Arabia is one of only four countries in the world that still practices public executions and has already executed more than 100 people in the first six months of 2015, mostly by ISIS-style beheadings at a rate of one every two days. So many, in fact, that the government posted a new job listing for eight additional executioners earlier this year. Saudi courts regularly hand down death sentences for things like sorcery, adultery, armed robbery, blasphemy, homosexuality, and drugs. Methods to carry out executions are gruesome. Beheading, firing squad, or stoning to death. Nonviolent drug offenses account for a shocking 43% of all executions. But when beheadings aren't terrifying enough, the kingdom's depraved elites resort to crucifixions. The appointment to the UN Human Rights Panel coincides with the news of Saudi Arabia's plan to behead and publicly crucify 21-year-old Saudi dissident Ali Amnamir for taking part in political demonstrations when he was just 17 years old. Here in the year 2015, Amnamir's beheaded corpse, with the head sewn back on, will be skewered on a cross for display for the crime of opposing the royal family. Operating courts in total secrecy, officials remain tight-lipped about who was killed and how. On occasion, though, videos are leaked. In 2015, footage got out of Saudi officials publicly beheading a Burmese woman on a busy Mecca street. You can hear the woman proclaiming her innocence as she is brutally executed by sword. Other punishments are so severe, they could result in death. Accused offenders have their limbs amputated, and dissenters are severely lashed. If the Saudi kingdom were an enemy of the US government, we'd be shown these images and facts every day on the mainstream media. But the crux of this relationship is keeping the real House of Saud a secret. Women's rights are human rights. But in such an oppressive patriarchy, driving is the least of what women can't do. Although Saudi women have finally been granted the right to vote in 2015, Saudi women still need permission from male masters to do pretty much anything, like work, go to school, or even receive medical treatment. Allowed into less than 15% of the workforce, a study cited in Al Arabiya showed over 78% of Saudi women who graduated college are unemployed, including over 1,000 PhDs. Women are also routinely punished for their own sexual assaults. 
In one case, a teenager who was gang-raped was punished with more lashings than her rapists in court. But it's not just the free agency of women the kingdom is afraid of. It's anyone who criticizes its outdated rule. In 2013, a Saudi activist was sentenced in a secret hearing to four years in jail and 300 public lashings for calling for a constitutional monarchy. In 2014, a lawyer and founder of an illegal human rights watchdog in Saudi Arabia was sentenced to 15 years in prison for criticizing the country's human rights abuses on Twitter. The list goes on. Wanton arrests and prolonged detention without trial or access to lawyers has always been prevalent in the country. But the sheer amount of people arbitrarily detained skyrocketed from the hundreds to the thousands under new anti-terrorism measures after 9-11. Thousands more moved to so-called re-education centers for undisclosed amounts of time. According to a 2009 Amnesty International report, thousands of people have been arrested and detained in virtual secrecy, while others have been killed in uncertain circumstances. Hundreds more people face secret and summary trials and possible execution. There is zero tolerance for political opposition. To date, no independent organization working for civil and political rights has ever been able to legally exist in the country. The brave few that attempt to speak out and organize get punished, or worse. The absolute monarchy has been dominated by only one family. It's never had an elected leader. Since its inception, the oppressive regime has consistently quashed any semblance of democracy and human rights under the cloak of religion. This brutality is the iron fist that ensures that the country's wealth is only siphoned into the stomachs of a select few. Those lucky enough to be in the royal bloodline or its inner circle relish in the fortunes. The combined wealth of the top 10 richest Saudis is bigger than the gross domestic product of more than 100 countries. The king's personal wealth is $18 billion. For the privileged in the kingdom, buying the world's biggest mega yachts, shopping for million dollar necklaces, owning empty mansions, and a life of endless vacation is just part of the package of having royal blood. It's a different story if you're not in the club. At least 20% of the population lives in abject poverty. 30% of Saudi youth are unemployed. But the unemployment rate only tells the hard story for Saudi workers. A darker reality exists for the 1.5 million migrant workers from Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and elsewhere who are subjected to super exploitation. With a population that is 30% migrants, foreign workers are recruited to work Gulf Arab states through a kafala, or sponsor. Saudi Arabia banned slavery in 1962, but the kafala has institutionalized a new slave-like system where employees are legally bound to their employers, stripped of their passports upon arrival, and in many instances denied money, mobility, and family contact. Millions of immigrants live in this indentured servitude, with no limit of work hours and under extremely harsh conditions. According to Human Rights Watch, most domestic workers reported working 15 to 20 hours a day, typically with one hour of rest or no rest at all. Domestic workers reported having to work even when ill or injured. Furthermore, many domestic workers were employed in large houses but reported inadequate living accommodations including having to sleep in storage closets and a bathroom. Anyone who flees this imprisonment is subject to arrest, 
All over the kingdom, there are wanted posters for missing workers, reminiscent of the days of runaway slaves and slave catchers. The Indonesian government even plans to stop allowing domestic workers to work in Saudi Arabia after the double execution of two Indonesian maids this May. 41 more Indonesian workers still await execution. To understand more about life in the Saudi kingdom, I spoke to director of the Institute for Gulf Affairs, an exiled Saudi dissident, Ali Al-Ahmed. Well, the wealth is immense. The problem is uh, its distribution. The ruling family uh, controls the, the wealth of the country, especially the oil, and they control the economy. So in terms of the benefit uh, of that wealth uh, is limited to the ruling family and some of its cronies. Of course, in the wake of King Abdullah's death, the U.S. government praised him as a great reformer. But how progressive was his reign? Uh, King Abdullah is an absolute monarch. Uh, he uh, has prevented the people of that country from participating in, in anything in terms of decision or wealth. So uh, I don't see the reform in that in terms of women, uh, right, that uh, people use to, uh, to talk about a lot with King Abdullah. He, he uh, imprisoned his own daughters, four daughters, for 14 years, and they still, uh, remain, their, their fate remains unknown. This is called domestic violence, when you hold uh, adult uh, uh, people against their will for so many years, that's domestic violence. So I don't know if somebody who is uh, committing a crime could be considered a reformer, especially a crime against his own daughters. Mm. Well, uh, that's important to know that uh, Saudi Arabia is the last country in the world to allow women to vote. And uh, this vote is not uh, any, uh, of any importance because the municipal elections that they are voting uh, for is partially elected and has nothing to do. They have no power. So uh, really, it's, it's, it's very much comical because uh, you elect people who have no power. Uh, that's, uh, that is uh, uh, really insignificant. Ali, we constantly hear about ISIS and their barbarism, but talk about how humane Saudi Arabia's judicial system is. The Saudi uh, judicial system is a very much a medieval, uh, sectarian, uh, medieval system that does not allow women, blacks, Shia, or uh, ordinary Sunnis to become part of it. Uh, it is very much an apartheid uh, court system and it is very similar to that of ISIS in, in its ruling and its sources. But what is it? Is it oil? Is it money? What is behind this unshakable bond? It's money. Again, you, you know, you, you saw uh, about 10 days ago, 12 days ago, former President Bill Clinton and former President George W. Bush, one, his wife is running for president, and the other, his brother is running for president, coming, flying to Washington to meet the Saudi king uh, to uh, basically pay respect to him, and maybe in the process uh, getting uh, uh, funded, their organizations or their campaigns getting funded by the Saudi or their Saudi allies in a very secret manner. I think it's time for the U.S. government, for the FBI, which has been harassing many people, they should go after. This is the real meaty stuff that they should go after, how a, a, an absolute monarchy that is funding terrorism, including uh, that against the United States, from uh, buying off presidential candidates. With such egregious affronts to human rights, why would U.S. politicians risk supporting such a tyrannical reign? 
History clearly tells us what the special relationship between ruling elites has always been about. The land that would become Saudi Arabia was once four distinct regions, encircled and partially owned by the Turkish Empire. Its hidden treasure was yet to be discovered, so the barren land went largely ignored by colonial powers. At the dawn of the 20th century, one man followed his wealthy family's footsteps to achieve a modest dream, to be a king and rule supreme over a diverse region. In a little over 20 years, through pillaging and conquering the countryside, Ibn Saad declared himself king in 1925. In 1927, he was recognized by the United Kingdom as ruler of the realm, but he already had a revolt on his hands by the same religious militia that he had depended on to rise to power. So he massacred them. And by 1932, Ibn Saad's kingdom of Saudi Arabia was complete. He had tried but failed to also capture the southern territory that is Yemen today. His 45 sons became the heirs to power and profit in Saudi Arabia. With the conclusion of World War I, the victorious empires carved up the land, but still weren't concerned with the seemingly worthless expanse. While European powerhouses laid claim to the region's riches, the new royal overlords found something beneath their feet, the pivot of the modern industrial economy. Knowing it had some amount of oil in unknown locations and a low level of technological development, the Saudi family elicited the help of foreign oil companies. In the post-World War I feeding frenzy, the British and French empires cut American oil companies out of the region's known oil reserves. Eager to find new sources, the company known as Chevron today staked claim to Saudi Arabia's hidden oil fields in 1933 and struck big after five years of drilling. The discovery was unprecedented in size. The Arabian American Oil Company was formed to cash in on the bubbling profits. This Arabian American Oil Company was actually 100% owned by American companies. Mobil with 10% and Exxon, Texaco and Chevron each with 30%. Aramco paid royalties to the Saudi family for exclusive rights to the fields. Only making a fraction of what the oil giants were making the profits were so vast that the Saudi monarchy grew even more obscenely wealthy. During World War II, Italian bombing crippled Saudi Arabian oil production. It was a wake-up call to the kingdom and Aramco. It needed protection, badly. Throughout the war, the US empire began to increasingly recognize the geostrategic importance of Saudi Arabia's vast oil reserves. So in 1943, President Roosevelt declared, that the defense of Saudi Arabia is vital to the defense of the United States. On behalf of the oil companies, the US government deemed oil a national priority. They wanted cheap oil, hegemony over the region's resources, and a military garrison to enforce its domination. The Saudi royal family wanted fat paychecks, and above all, to have its power protected. So in 1945, an official oil for protection deal was made through President Roosevelt, securing a U.S. air and naval base in Saudi Arabia and unchallenged oil access. The U.S. then rebuilt and protected Saudi Arabia's bombed oil fields. The monarchy was pumped full of cash, training, and military equipment. Its protection from both external and internal threats promised by the Pentagon. Indeed, the fragile Saudi kingdom was challenged. 
1953, in the eastern province, a hotbed of socialist organizing, workers at Aramco went on strike demanding a union. That same year, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia began the U.S. military training mission, which continues to this day, teaching the Saudi monarchs how to crush those types of annoyances. So when Aramco workers went on strike three years later, the kingdom had all the strike leaders swiftly assassinated. A new royal decree forbade any type of pro-worker demonstration. And they had shown just how far they would go to enforce it. In 1962, with a revolution that believed oil profits belonged to the people and not kings at its doorstep, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and the United Kingdom supported the royalists' bloody counter-revolution in Yemen. Washington started sending squadrons of F-100 fighter jets to the Saudi kingdom. But this mutually beneficial relationship was not always expressed as complete subservience. The colonial project known as Israel caused a temporary rift between the empire and the Saudi monarchs, whose own base was fervently opposed to the Israeli ethnic cleansing, as well as fearing the Israeli aggression. By 1973, when the war broke out, the Saudi monarchs had to take a harder position. So the kingdom used the only leverage it had, cutting off oil to any country supporting Israel's expansion. Involving 12 oil-producing countries in the region, the Saudi-led oil embargo caused an energy crisis in the U.S. Price of oil quadrupled overnight, and gas prices skyrocketed. But while Saudi princes were flexing their oil muscle, the U.S. government was never really too worried about losing its access. All the oil in the world cannot trump the biggest military in the world. If we were pushed absolutely against the wall, we might secure the oil uh, by our own means. Nixon and Kissinger never had to bomb the monarchs for their oil. Noble House of Saud, which had stood up so heroically for indigenous Palestinians against colonialism, was wooed by a more persuasive argument. Killing indigenous people resisting colonialism in Vietnam. The Nixon administration pointed out to the royal family that the real threat to them was communism, not Israel. The Saudi kings had been watching U.S. stooges and dictators overthrown by people's movements the world over, fully aware of their own mortality. And that was all it took to get the oil flowing again. And they, along with royal partners like Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, were lavishly rewarded for it in an oil boom that's been called the most dramatic transfers of wealth in human history. It continued to help the U.S. shape the world by being their biggest financer of the Mujahideen's reign of terror in Afghanistan. But still, the specter of revolution haunted the pampered princes. After the Iranian people overthrew their dictatorship, hundreds in Saudi Arabia were inspired to seize the Grand Mosque, calling for the overthrow of the kingdom. The Saudi military crushed the rebellion. Over 60 surviving organizers were brought back to their hometowns and beheaded in front of their families. At the same exact time, revolution was rearing its head in the East. When Shia Muslims were attacked for celebrating an illegal religious holiday, 19-year-old student organizer Hussein Mansur al-Khalaf was shot and killed. His death sparked massive demonstrations. The Communist Party, student and women's organizations, and the religious community came out in the tens of thousands. Days of mass protests ensued. The years of being trained and armed by the U.S. came in handy. 20,000 Saudi soldiers were deployed. The Saudi king's only remedy was heavy machine gun helicopters to strafe neighborhoods and unleash on literally any grouping of people in public. 
Even funerals were attacked. Thousands were rounded up and sent to be tortured, imprisoned, or executed. It was clear that the increasingly wealthy ruling family lived with the reality that its subject population could always rise up. The U.S. was fearful, too, of losing their puppet princes. And the Reagan administration pledged it would send the U.S. military to Saudi Arabia to stop any revolution. The perks for the U.S. empire played out in a big way in 1990, when its destruction of Iraqi society was made possible by using Saudi Arabia as the military staging ground. U.S. military power, including drone bases, remain today. After 80 years of unbridled brutality to protect their absolute power, the Saudi billionaires were again faced with their ultimate threat. The Arab Spring struck fear into repressive police state monarchies all over the Middle East, and the House of Saud knew very well its place in that equation. So it issued a wide decree banning all journalism that could be construed as challenging the monarchy or sympathetic for the protests. The internet was even more heavily censored and monitored for political organizing. But people everywhere stood up as protests erupted in front of government ministry buildings in Riyadh, Tabuk, and Taif. Over the course of the next few months, 19 people were shot to death by security forces. Any known organizer was hunted down arrested, tortured, and sometimes executed. Bahrain's Arab Spring was also crushed by a thousand Saudi soldiers sent to protect their cohort kingdom. Close to a hundred unarmed demonstrators were killed in the slaughter. You would never know it watching the Western media, but Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring still lives in the East. People there are still fighting and dying. In September 2012, 26-year-old protester Khalid Labad was assassinated by Saudi police, along with two teenage relatives. Dubbed Bloody Wednesday, their funeral became a mass demonstration. By the end of 2013, the area was completely occupied militarily, surrounded by checkpoints. At least 15 youth have been shot and killed by the state for protesting. A list of 23 wanted activists was published by the monarchy. Most on the list have been hunted down and killed or arrested, the survivors forever in hiding. Despite this horrific repression, resistance heroically continues to this day. The engorged lapdog of the U.S. Empire's domestic and foreign policy is based on a violent defense of its rule, because that's its only hope for survival, which is why it's become the world's biggest arms importer. Since the Arab Spring, Saudi arms imports have quadrupled. Made in the USA, of course. In 2013 alone, they bought $5.5 billion worth of American firepower. In 2014, Saudi Arabia joined the US bombing campaigns in Syria and Iraq. Like the US, it too is now fighting the very threat it helped create, with years of arming reactionary groups with endless weapons. But it's not just with guns. The most extreme factions of the Saudi elite are openly engaged in financially sponsoring Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Despite being the closest ally in the war on terror, WikiLeaks found Hillary Clinton admitting that donors in Saudi Arabia constitute the most significant source of funding to Sunni terror groups worldwide, to the tune of $100 billion. To protect their lucrative relationship, U.S. politicians have gone to great lengths to hide the most scandalous secret of all, Saudi Arabia's role in 9-11. 
28 pages of a joint congressional inquiry into 9-11 remain classified, but we know what's in them. Lead author of the report, Senator Bob Graham, said the pages point a very strong finger at Saudi Arabia as the principal financier of the hijackers. Because the Arab Spring puts such fear into the House of Saud, it's shown that it will pursue its own foreign policy, outside of simply being a puppet to the Pentagon. The Saudi monarchy has been pushing the U.S. for a much harsher approach for regime change in Syria and Iran, even secretly meeting with Israeli officials. Two completely dependent children of the empire teaming up out of anger over the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal. And earlier this year, the Saudi princes embarked on their most heinous offense yet. Backed by other Gulf monarchies and the Pentagon, the new Saudi king is leading a huge war on civilians to decide a country's future. At least 150,000 Saudi troops are now in Yemen. To date, more than 4,000 Yemenis have been killed by Saudi aggression, at least half of them civilians. Bombs have reduced the precious 2,500-year-old cultural site in Sana'a to rubble. In one massacre, Saudi troops used U.S. Apache helicopters to mow down 40 civilians, including rescue workers. And their latest atrocity is the bombing of a wedding party, murdering over 130 Yemenis. Desperate to see regional foes obliterated and internal opposition snuffed, there's no telling what length this rotting kingdom will go to keep its billionaires in their yachts. The masses it oppresses inside and its neighbors who correctly see it as a stooge to U.S. military crimes strike fear into the twisted hearts of these so-called royals. Seemingly very different, the House of Saud and the leaders of the U.S. actually have a lot in common. Both are an obscenely wealthy clique, ruling over the majority, holding power through outdated draconian laws, and unleashing brutality on anyone, anywhere, who challenges it. Because when it comes to the empire, economic interests trump morality every time. The Saudi people are fighting for their sovereignty every day. But it's only with American sponsorship that these tyrannical, absolute monarchies are able to continue their militarized reign of repression and theft. We have the ability to expose and stand up to the oil companies, the Pentagon, and the politicians who prop up this kingdom. And we have reason to be optimistic because we can see how desperately scared they are of losing their crowns. Knowing history has not been kind to kings. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.